The Start. On Demand. On Demand. Hey, it's Brett. It's the Wednesday edition of the podcast for The Start with Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb. The U.S. midterm elections yielded the result we were expecting. We'll get details from Global's Reggie Cicchini on that. Jack White had a concert Tuesday night at Bell MTS Place, and they had a policy, no cell phones allowed. Not in the sense that you couldn't bring them in. You were allowed to bring them in, but they gave you this special pouch where you would put the phone in and then it would lock So you couldn't use it during the show because they wanted you to actually enjoy the show and watch it with your eyes instead of through your phone. So we're going to have a chat about that. We're going to talk about a woman who got two speeding tickets in two different cars on the same morning from the same RCMP officer on the perimeter highway. Whoops. We're also going to talk about... A member of Parliament, Tony Clement, he is in trouble for exposing himself. He's been exposed for exposing himself with inappropriate pictures that he sent to someone who then extorted him or tried to extort him for a huge sum of money. Huge football game this weekend. Winnipeg Blue Bombers visit the Saskatchewan Rough Riders in the CFL playoffs. We'll speak to bomber legend Bob Cameron about this storied rivalry. And then finally, we want to introduce you to somebody who's going to be at the Sherry Zedek Synagogue on Wednesday night. His name is Noam Gershani, and he tells the story of how he was an Israeli helicopter pilot and survived a harrowing crash and went on to become a Paralympic gold medalist. Mackling McGarry McNabb on 680 CJOB. Which one of you stayed up to watch the midterm coverage yesterday? You did, Mackling. Yeah, McNabb, I, d- you did? I, I think I was in bed just after nine, so not. I didn't. I didn't get to the end result, so to speak. But you could see the trend for sure. I was watching most of it with one eye closed and one eye open up until about ten thirty or so last night. I was very interested in what happened in Florida last night in terms of the gubernatorial race there. I, I thought that was going to be fascinating, and I, they, Florida, as typical, did not let us down. It was less than a percentage point. Mm-hmm. Always that so separated. Close there. Yeah, Rick DeSantis and uh, uh, Gilliam, the the uh, Democratic candidate there. Yeah, they never let us down. It's always so close. It's a very divided state. Well, to get more on this, we're joined once again by Global's Reggie Cicchini, joining us live from Washington. Reggie, good morning to you, sir. Good morning. So the Democrats take the House, Republicans retain the Senate, and uh, did this go as the way everybody expected? For the most part, yes. Pollsters had been saying that we were going to see some kind of big gain when it came to the Democrats. They kind of gave a little bit of a pendulum swing, saying it could be something like five, maybe six gains. It could be something upwards towards 50. We wound up in the middle of that with uh, with it looking like by the time we get through some contested races and uh, get some final numbers in, it looks like we're going to wind up with 230 seats for the Democrats, 205 in the House for the Republicans. That's going to be enough to put a new way of working in Washington. New checks and balances are going to be placed on the White House, and it's going to to be 230 thorns in Donald Trump's side for the next two years. This is the first time, I think, Reggie, in eight years that uh, the Democrats have uh, kind of walked back in to take control of the Congress. What difference does this make 
new House majority make there, though? Well, I mean, this is going to be a big deal because what the House has now is the power of subpoena. They will be able to uh, call up investigations when they want. They now chair these big, powerful committees uh, that could look into something like Donald Trump's taxes and his finances. This is something that the president has been really hesitant to talk about in public. He's really uh, refused to put his uh, tax returns into the public spotlight. We now could have uh, uh, Democrats inside the House subpoena the president to get these put out there, and it'll be, it'll be interesting to see what kind kind of fight he puts up uh, because, again, there, there's a controlling uh, uh, opposing party inside the House right now, and it's something that Washington hasn't seen, yes, not only for eight years, but not for the first two years that pres- uh, Trump has been president. Every poll I saw ranked and rated Nancy Pelosi as a very desis- divisive figure, even amongst Democrats, her popularity uh, uh, very, very low amongst decided voters. And I'm just curious as to who is going to sort of take the lead on Capitol Hill on behalf of the Democrats. Is there an heir apparent right now? Reggie. Well, there's a lot of names that kind of get thrown around right now. Nancy Pelosi is likely going to uh, face you know, a heated race when it comes to that vote. She needs about 218 uh, to to be able to become the Speaker of the House. She may get it. I mean, as divisive as Nancy Pelosi is, and as many people may not like her within the, the, the Democratic Party, she has history. She has seniority on her side. She knows how to get a vote. She knows how to whip people together. So there are some things that work for her. The problem is, is that after what we saw last night, this is a brand new party. This is a much more diverse party, and there may be thinking that they want something a little newer and a little fresher uh, to stand up with that gavel in their hand. So come January, we'll see whether or not she's actually able to get up there and continue on as that first female Speaker of the House. I know Donald Trump, U.S. President, was quick to take to Twitter last night and call the whole evening a victory for the Republicans and for himself, even retweeting a quote from a, a pundit who said, quote, Mr. Trump has magic about him. This guy has magic coming out of his ears. And then, of course, he retweeted that. Reggie, he's holding a news conference this morning. Is that going to be the line going forward from him that, oh, this this is a win, not a loss for us at all? I- Absolutely. We're going to look at it and what the president has to say because he's going to put his focus on the Senate to say, look, we made some gains. We took some Senate seats away from Democrats last night, despite the fact that they were vulnerable, despite the fact that most people had said, yes, this, the, the, the Senate is going to stay in the Republicans' hands. The president will walk away with a win for that, and he'll likely stay away from talking about losing the House. He, he'll try to absolve himself from any kind of responsibility when it comes to losing the House. So he'll say, look, Democrats may have control right there, but we have a big lead in the Senate. We have a big control in the Senate right now, and we'll likely keep that control for the next six years. This is going to be a big talking point for the president, not only at 1130 Washington time when he speaks, but for the next two years. Reggie Cicchini from Global News in Washington joining us live on 680 CJOB. So the fact that the Republicans have retained the Senate, what does that mean for Donald Trump and the Republicans? Well, I mean, that it, it, it means going forward that if there's a new uh, executive appointment that needs to be made, that the president's going to have a very easy time getting this through. It means that if there's a new opening on the Supreme Court or if new uh, lower level and circuit court judges uh, need to be appointed, he's going to have an easy time getting this through. And well, you know, some people may look and say, well, look, it's just judicial appointments that are coming through. These are things that can shape the U.S. Uh, when it comes to law 10, 20, 30, 40 years uh, for the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years. So uh, Republican control of the Senate is a big deal right now. Uh, Losing control in the House for for the Republicans, also a big deal, because this, again, like we said, is the first time that Donald Trump is going to have any kind of check and balance on him for the first two years that he was in office. So we mentioned uh, before we brought you on the gubernatorial races in in Georgia and Florida in particular that were fascinating for a lot of people. Is it fair to say this big blue wave did not materialize, Reggie? 
yes, when it comes to the governorship races, there are a couple of ones that, that the Democrats really wanted to keep. And you're right, Georgia and Florida were two uh, disappointments. Now, right now, despite the fact that Andrew Gillum has actually conceded to, to uh, defeat in that uh, gubernatorial race, it's within the half percent margin of error. And anything that's 0.5 and, and under uh, automatically goes to a recount. So we're now in Florida going to have to watch uh, to see if this is actually what happens beyond a recount. Uh, Georgia is another one that hasn't actually been called right now. Uh, Brian Kemp is just squeaking over that 50% right now, but uh, Stacey Abrams says that there are tens of thousands of ballots from uh, from the Atlanta metro area that haven't been counted yet. So two races that haven't been called yet, there's still a very slim chance that the Democrats could walk away with this, but we have to wait to see once those final uh, tallies come in, if that's going to be the case. Reggie Giacchini joining us live on 680 CJOB. Thank you very much, sir. Thank you. 643 on 680 CJOB. And before we get to our next segment, Greg, any closing thoughts? I know you love uh, the American politics. The interesting thing about Georgia is whoever wins the gubernatorial vote has to get 50% plus one vote. So there was a third party candidate in there and they were wondering if maybe that person might steal enough votes where they might actually have to have a runoff in January. So depending on these tens of thousands of votes that are apparently still out there, that that could take uh, the leader camp below that 50% and they might have to do this all over again in January, which would be absolutely fascinating. It was also interesting to watch Georgia because that's where they had had to extend the voting hours, I think, because of lineups and uh, such a massive turnout and then questions about would this even be a fair election if not everybody got a chance to vote because polls closed. and uh, So there's all sorts of things. I see why she's not conceding. I wouldn't either. Mackling, McGarry, McNabb, Moore, Braun, Forte. Everyone's here to talk about what happened last night at Bell MTS Place for Jack White. And the note that went out from Jack White's people, please note, for tonight's Jack White show, this is a phone-free show. No photos, video, or audio recording devices allowed. We think you'll enjoy looking up from your gadgets for a little while and experience music and our shared love in person. Mm-hmm. Upon arriving at the venue, all phones and other photo or video capturing gizmos will be secured in a yonder pouch that will be unlocked at the end of the show. You keep your pouch secured phone on you during the show and if needed can unlock your phone at any time in a designated yonder phone zone located in the lobby or concourse. And for those looking to do some social media postings, let us help you with that. I think I mentioned this after I went to see Foo Fighters in St. Paul three years ago. I would have loved to have just kept my phone away and then had access to either the footage of the concert that I paid over $100 a seat to see and not worried about being obsessed about capturing parts of it at different times and then just completely, completely enjoyed. I think Bruce Springsteen does that uh, attached to his ticket. Somebody texted us after that last conversation, but we've had lots of discussions the last couple of weeks about restaurants that are banning cell phones. Mm -hmm. Loren, you told us about that restaurant that has the nifty little phone size compartment. So are people actually taking video at the concert and then ever watching it again or doing thinking, anything like, with it? I, I don't. Yes. I, I take, yes. yes. What every, are you doing with every it? Every event I go to, I take photos of it. I never look at the pictures. Mm. Ever. 
Like I like I think part of the the desire is taking a picture of yourself and then sharing it, and then you can say, "Look where I am." I was at this concert, and sometimes that's fair. Like it could be someone super iconic that you're never going to see again, and you want to you want to capture that moment. But I don't get the video. Like, what are you doing with that video? <laughs> I've looked back at the video from Foo Fighters at Wrigley Field from this past summer, and it's like I'm back there. It's pretty cool, and shared it with with people one on one. So uh, I, I I'm on the other side of that. Uh, there there's something about capturing that moment. Because I've taken I have taken video at concerts and been like <laughs> watched it later and been like what like I what am I seeing? Here? I guess you're not a very good videographer. <laughs> or then. maybe I'm just a bad seats, but I've never watched it again and been like, oh yeah, that's better than anything I could probably. YouTube right now. Kelly, doesn't, on this it dr- doesn't it drive me nuts when people are sitting in the front row at the hockey game and they're instead of just watching what's in front of them, they're watching it through their four inch screen? It's like, put the phone down. Okay, you know, uh, you're talking to the old fossil of the group, the only one who followed the rules this morning and did not bring my phone into the studio. <laughs> Where are the yonder pouches for all your phones? But yeah, I, it, it always amazes me when I think of the incredible amount of money that people have spent to go to, you know, whether it's concerts, sporting events, whatever, and spend half of that time on their phones. It, 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 it befuddles me, and I, and I am so thankful that I am not addicted to my phone and that I could care less about having a phone anywhere. Uh, it just so I, but I, I don't understand. What, what, why does Jack White not want phones there? Is it because it uh, affects the lighting? Or no, he, is he it wants, because of the piracy on social media? Well, he's or? saying he wants you to enjoy the experience. That was his response, I think, when it first came out yeah, in the spring. It says, well, it says they want you to enjoy a phone-free 100% human experience and on to just sort of dovetail on what you said greg uh they also added that the official tour photographer will be posting photos and videos after the show at jack white iii.com and the new jack white live instagram account at official jack white live and you can repost the photos and videos as much as you want so they want you to go to the show and then you can go back and get actual high quality photos and videos and you can relive the memory that way i will admit like not so much for concerts because the audio is terrible Mm -hmm. Uh, generally if you're recording it on your phone although it's been a while since i've done that how is the audio on yours pretty good it's good okay then not as good as anything like if they had offered you professional quality oh yeah that's i'd way prefer that but i wouldn't mind uh, being able to to capture some of the stuff you see at a like a cirque du soleil show like uh, the the curios thing where they were eating dinner, but they were upside down up on the ceiling. Like I wish I had that on video somewhere because that was incredible. And I do not have your memory, Greg, so I can't. I can <laughs> I can remember it in generalities, but I can't remember the specific imagery. And so that would be nice to be able to see. That, that would again. be distracting for them if flashes and everything were going totally, off and, and they're totally dangling from the roof. And then suddenly Brett's phone. Oh, sorry. Yeah. A lot of bands also just record their whole shows, and you can buy it afterwards. Like I bought a black. Crows concert from Winnipeg from 10 years ago that I was at. So a lot of bands do that too. And like I, I didn't have to do anything. I just went to the website later and was like for seven bucks or whatever, bought the concert that I, I just saw. I do think there has to be from something from the performer that like is annoyed by the crowd doing mm-hmm. that. Well, I was at Coldplay last August in Minneapolis. That was your first mistake. And uh, oh no, it was amazing. <laughs> it was an amazing concert. But at, at, right near the end, he said twice, I'm going to ask everybody, like, take your pictures now. It was nearing the end of the concert. And the whole time, the audience was lit up. He had these different things going on where these uh, you wearing wristbands and they they lit with the music and it was super cool. And he just said, could everybody just for this last song, 
Please put down your wow. phones and enjoy this moment. And I, I really think he was probably like, like looking out in that audience and thinking, no is anybody now. even like enjoying this or paying attention to me? I and get it. I get it from the artist's point yes. of view because it's rude, you know. Like you're, like I know people paid. Yeah. But to you know, you're performing in front of people instead of them paying attention to you. They're looking away. They're doing something else. It's like, come on, I'm up here. Well, I can. Oh, go ahead, Brett. I was just going to say, even though you are still looking at it through your phone, you're still looking at it. You're just not looking right at it. You're, and you're not at doing it, it for windows. the whole two hours or no, anything. Oh, but some people, uh, it, it's uh, been ridiculous where you watch people and they keep pulling it out and pulling it out. They must have 400 videos by the end. Like, I just don't know what you're doing. It's like home videos from the 80s. And you're like, did anyone ever go back and watch those when we got all excited with the candid camera? Well, guess it's what? also, oh, sorry. It's also a little annoying for somebody like me. I'm short. So if somebody's holding their phone up, yeah. I can't see what, what's going on on stage. So, uh, Bring the phone down. Yeah, you can just look at the phone in front of you. Bring then. your booster oh, seat yeah. to the concert. They're actually doing you a favor. Bring your booster seat. And guess what's just about upon us? It's uh, Christmas concert season at school, and all the parents are going to be fighting for the best view with their they iPads. Should, that's where they should be banning these cameras. They I'd like to see what happens. completely banning them, and they hire one person to video <laughs> yeah. the whole thing, and you get but a little picture. But they wouldn't zoom in on my kid. Uh, yeah, because your kid's doing such a he great is. job. He is. He's just that recorder Glenn. playing is remarkable. Mm-hmm. I can't wait to hear how Salad Night sounds on that thing. You go back and do the telestrator and go, hey, your fingering was a little bit off on Silent Night there. I'd like you to just press a little better on the no you're not doing that we actually saw that in person when we went to the kindergarten graduation at earl gray right where yes. it was just a sort of parade of parents trying to, to fight for the best spot they'd be getting down on their knees so they could capture the moment on video and it was to be fair it was one of the most adorable things i've ever seen oh i still watch like we they were at their their first little nursery school and i still watch their christmas videos i love it that's not the same I had to put your phone down moment, though, over the weekend. I was at Pine Ridge Hollow, and they have this little enclosure with uh, these little pigs and some goats. And so I was just kept putting everything on. I was getting video and putting it on my Instagram story. And then uh, this big pig runs over, and uh, a friend says, that's the mummy pig. And I said, because I'm looking at it through my phone, I said, well, how do you know? Well, if you put the phone down, you'll see the teats underneath the pig <laughs> with the big sack of milk, but I couldn't see it because I'm looking through my phone. <laughs> you had the digital blinders on. Yeah. See? Lesson learned. So I posted that video and then I put it away. <laughs> In a moment, we're going to talk about this crazy story about a woman who gets two speeding tickets in two different cars in the same morning from the same Mountie. But we start, Loren, with uh, problems for an MP exposed for exposing himself. Yeah, that's right. And it was a shocking statement that was issued by Conservative MP Tony Clement last night. Here's just a part of what he wrote, saying, quote, over the last three weeks, I have shared sexually explicit images and a video of myself to someone who I believed was a consenting female recipient. The recipient was, in fact, an individual who targeted me for the purpose of financial extortion, and the RCMP are currently investigating the matter. So he's basically resigned from all his positions in the House of Commons. He is a father, a husband, and these pictures were shared with someone else. Uh, Mercedes Stevens, Global's reporter from Ottawa, broke it down for Charles Adler last night. And he revealed uh, that he had sent sexually explicit images and video to someone who he says he thought was a consenting female. 
but he discovered that, in fact, there was someone uh, or other people behind this profile who were looking for money. And I can tell you that multiple sources have told Global News that after he sent these images, he was faced with a threat uh, to basically pay up or have them released. And we have confirmed here at Global Charles exclusively that the demand was for 50,000 euros. So not an unsubstantial sum of money. Did you work that out, Greg? 50,000 euros? That's about 80,000 Canadian dollars. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a lot of money. Yeah, so we're going to talk to uh, Global's David Aiken after 7.30 uh, news just to hear a little bit more about the fallout from this. But, uh, man, I got so many questions about why people do this, how it happens, and so we're also reaching out to different experts in the the sexting field because it's, it's, hey, we can knock them for doing it, but a lot of people do. The headline at CJOB.com. Driver gets two speeding tickets in two different cars in same morning from same RCMP officer. And the, the tweet that went out from RCMP reads as follows. What did you do before noon today? A 30-year-old woman was pulled over for speeding in two different cars this morning by the same officer on the west perimeter. At 8.27 a.m., she was clocked at 124 kilometers an hour. $364, and at 11.55 a.m. for 119 kilometers an hour, $299, for a total of $663. The, I think the thing that gets me the most is two different cars. About I don't know how that works. Yeah, it, seems, it feels deliberate, like went home and was like, I don't want to get busted again, so they won't catch me this time if I get in the green car she, she or whatever. The faster car or <laughs> slower car, maybe. The she chameleon thought- car, the invisible car. What, what, what are you thinking? Yeah, especially like when I, I haven't had a speeding ticket, I think now for about 10 years. The last one I got, I was heading over the Maryland Bridge. I was coming off Academy, heading over the bridge towards downtown, and I was doing 67 and a 50. The new divide by Lincoln Park was on Power 97. And I don't know what it is about that particular curve, but there's something about going around a curve like that. I don't know if it's like a slingshot effect, but I just feel this urge to... to Put the pedal down! I guess so, and combined (laughs) with the loud music, that was a big hit at the time, and uh, I just... I wasn't, it was, it all was like three seconds of not paying attention. And sure enough, I put the pedal down and there was a cop sitting behind a planter just coming out of the gates, that little community there that's off to the side. And I got nailed for that. And I, the last thing on my mind after that was even approaching anywhere above the speed limit. And now I probably anger a lot of drivers because I usually don't do more than five over the limit. Maybe on the highway, I'll go 10. I can't get over how slow I am now on the shift to drive in. Like, I just drive, just, it's so dark. And I'm like, why am I awake? And so I just peter along. Just, and some days I'll look down and be like going 85 in a 100 kilometer highway and wonder what the heck I'm doing, but I'm nervous or I'm kind of in the zone. I don't well, it's know. It's dark, right? You know, you want to be safe on the highway. I've been pulled over for speeding three times in my life, twice in the greatest province in our union, Saskatchewan. <laughs> like, this is the problem, Greg. Every time you say that, we have to explain to people your strategy of reverse psychology so the Bombers win this weekend if he cheers for the Riders. Continue on. Yeah, but I love Saskatchewan. It's the greatest place ever. Yeah, so uh, once was on a Sunday morning. My buddy and I were driving to try and catch up to our friends that had left about 12 hours before us in Lake to, to Lake Louise and then to Panorama. And... Uh, my buddy looked over, he goes, uh, Mackling, going a little bit fast. I go, it's Sunday morning. We're in Saskatchewan. Even the RCMP are at church. 
Uh, about 12 minutes later, I got pulled over, 180 something dollar ticket. That was back in 19, yeah. I, I don't know, 90. What were you doing? Oh, I'm 35. And uh. Uh, in a rabbit, <laughs> a Volkswagen <laughs> rabbit. And then another time I was coming the other way, going to meet a friend in Regina and I uh, was anxious to get there and... Uh, is this an emergency situation, sir? Uh, no, officer, it's not. Well, you're driving like it is. <laughs> I had the same thing in Saskatchewan. We were on our way to the Heritage Classic in Edmonton, 2003, the very first one. Right. Going to pick up our siblings at the Edmonton airport, my brother and I. So I was speeding a bit through Saskatchewan. Guy, guy pulls me over. I say, I'm on the way to the hockey game, thinking that would... He said, I don't like hockey. <laughs> I found the one, the one RCMP officer who didn't care about Wayne Gretzky and the gang. A serious problem for a longtime member of parliament. Well, it's no doubt the talk in Ottawa today. It's certainly the talk right across the country. David Aiken is the global reporter that I first learned this news from last night. He, had, he tweeted out a statement from Conservative MP Tony Clement. He resigned from caucus last night after sharing with everyone that he had shared sexually explicit images with a person he says is now extorting him. And of course, uh, he is a married man, a father of three, and so there's lots of questions about his personal life, about his political life, and what was going on in the first place. So joining us on the phone now is Global's David Aiken from Ottawa. Good morning, David. Morning, Loren. And just to just to be clear, he hasn't resigned from caucus. That's actually going to be an issue we're going to try and follow today. He resigned from his parliamentary and caucus positions. He was, for example, the Conservatives' justice critic in, the, in Andrew Shear's shadow cabinet. So he's resigned from that. He's also resigned from a, a newish National Security Oversight Committee, and this is where this becomes a bit of a bigger deal. This particular committee is an all-party committee that is set up to oversee the activities of the RCMP, CSIS, CSE, and he would have had access to the most top-secret secrets. And for those in the national security community, this is the nightmare scenario, where a member of this committee who has all these secrets somehow has not set his or her private life in order that it would survive public scrutiny and sure enough that's what's happened and has left him or herself open to some sort of blackmail or extortion. The RCMP is investigating here. We do not know anything other than what Tony Clement has said, that the person who's trying to extort him was what he thought was a consenting female friend. And he sent these sexually explicit videos and images of himself. This individual turned around and told Clement, fork over 50,000 euros. That's right, 50,000 euros, or this will all come to light. 50,000 euros is about 75,000 bucks Canadian. It's a lot of money, even for a parliamentarian. And that's when Clement went to the, RCM, er, the RCMP, but he also told the Prime Minister's office, he had to tell the Privy Council office, because they're involved in this National Security Committee, and of course he's told his leader. So this makes... Uh, the Tony Comment affair, if you will, a, a bit of a bigger deal than just a, a yet another scandal in which an MP is involved in potentially inappropriate uh, sexual activity. And, and we should point out, in this case, unlike the other situations where MPs are involved in inappropriate activity, um, Clement here is, the, is saying he's the victim. Uh, in the sense that he's a victim or a potentially a target of extortion. So this is a very, this is a strange one, honest to God, and you're right, Parliament Hill tongues are wagging already this morning. We're just about an hour away from a closed-door uh, Conservative caucus meeting. They do this every Wednesday. I'd love to be a fly on the wall in this particular meeting. 
I'm not sure if Clement's going to be there, but he has every right to be. He's still a member of the caucus. So he was technically, he was compromised, and that is potentially yes. the bigger issue, right, David? Absolutely. And we've seen this before. Um, we saw it in the last parliament, or maybe two ago, but it was a guy named Bob Deckert. He was a conservative MP. Uh, in the Harper government, and he was the foreign affairs parliamentary secretary. So he's involved in foreign affairs, and he ends up, he's married as well, and he ends up having a liaison of some sort with a Chinese, uh, communist Chinese journalist. And those of us here in Ottawa, we pretty much know that if you call yourself a Chinese journalist, air quotes, you're probably a spy or you're working for the Chinese government. So here was Bob Deckard, a, one of Harper's parliamentary secretaries, having a, a fling with a Chinese journalist. That came to light. He was embarrassed, said sorry. The national security community had to, had to have some briefings and she was whisked back to China. So we know foreign governments do this or look for opportunities, not only with Canadian politicians, but with politicians in any Western democracy looking for leverage. Uh, and we'd li- I'd certainly we'd like to know more about Tony Clement's alleged extortionist. If this was just a matter of um, somebody looking for some money from a Canadian politician or uh, looking for some leverage on a policymaker who had Canada's secrets in Dave, his back pocket. David, I know we're talking about Tony Clement, but I got to just pedal back to what you just said about in, in air quotes uh, regarding a Chinese journalist. Do you care to elaborate on that? This, uh, I, I don't really know anything about that. So the, the the Chinese state the Chinese state media is called Xinhua, and Xinhua employs journalists around the world, and they have accredited journalists here in the parliamentary press gallery, and uh, it, I, it's pretty common knowledge in most national security agencies that if a Xinhua journalist is in the room or coming to your event, be aware that this person is collecting information for the government, for the state, and uh, that is their quote unquote cover, and not only in uh, in Canada but in uh, in places around the world. Xinhua is, as they say, it's a state media, but we have state media in the sense we have CBC in this country, but they couldn't be more different. CBC is independent journalists doing the work I do, you do, etc. In China, if you work for Xinhua, that's state propaganda you're producing, um, and uh, it's, it's, it's the government telling everybody what the news is. So it's a big, it's a big deal when... Um, you have an affair if you're a parliamentary secretary for the foreign affairs minister, uh, if you have an affair with a Chinese journalist. That's uh, that's something to, that, that really get, gets people's attention. Has Russia been mentioned at all? You know, with all the talk of collusion and Red and, Sparrow and all, and all the rest. I'm just curious. You know, that's a line of questioning. I, I know we haven't had a chance to talk to a conservative MP Tony Clement yet, but I, I just wonder where. Well, that... he's not taking calls, <laughs> and and we definitely want to know about this. Don't forget, this came out. Everybody's watching midterms last night, right? And all of a sudden, boom! Tony Clement starts trending on Twitter, and not for a good reason. Um, about what's going on. Sure. Uh, we definitely have to know if, uh, you know, is this a Russian individual? They're asking for euros. Is this a Canadian who's trying to hide some money off shore? Is it somebody from out of the country? Again, uh, you know, this is uh, the, the uh, great scoop by our, our colleague uh, Mercedes Stevenson here to identify the fact that it was 50,000 euros that Clement was being asked for. I should point out, uh, Tony Clement was born in the UK. Uh, he came here as a young child, but he is, uh, his heritage, uh, yeah, I think it's Greek Cypriot, but born in the UK. So he is a citizen of the UK as well as of Canada. And here an extortionist person is asking for 50,000 euros. The other, the other thing, and this is a wrinkle here in terms of identity, after this news came out, Twitter filled up with a lot of women, largely the same age, college age, many of them looked the same, brunettes, uh, not one, not two. I'm talking several who said, uh, in retrospect, 
I've found it creepy that Tony would be, Clement would be on Instagram on my page and liking all sorts of my photos. He'd dig down into my Instagram account to like photos of me. Again, this is many women. Tony Clement was a digital sophisticate. He has 11,000 Instagram followers. And for those not on Instagram, that's a lot. He had 77,000 followers on Twitter, 3,500 followers on Facebook. And again, we're hearing comments from women on those platforms saying, yeah, now, uh, from to think of it, it was a little strange that, that uh, you know, t Tony's in his late 50s. He would be um, liking so many pictures of essentially college-educated or college-age uh, or a little bit older uh, women. So that's another wrinkle to this mix. We're looking at Tony's social media habits, trying to get some clues as to who this extortionist might be. David Aiken joining us live on 680-CJOB. David, thank you very much. Great, thanks. Cheers. David from Global News. Mackling McGarry McNabb on 680 CJOB. Ed the Sock is coming to Winnipeg, and he spoke with Hal Anderson Afternoons yesterday. We are going to play some of that conversation coming up at 8.37. But no one's coming to Winnipeg this weekend, but heading to... What, Greg, now, what did, how did you describe it? The greatest province in our union? That is correct. Saskatchewan. Mm-hmm. It's not the gap anymore. <laughs> so let's ask our guest what he thinks about that. Bob Cameron is on the line. Winnipeg Blue Bomber legend, Mr. Cameron, good morning to you. Good morning. So Greg is employing a reverse psychology method. He did it a few weeks ago when the Bombers took on the Riders, and it worked. The Bombers won. And then when uh, Calgary came to town, Greg declared the Stamps his favorite team, <laughs> and the Bombers won. So now, once again, the Riders are Greg's favorite team. Uh, as a former Winnipeg Blue Bomber, what's your reaction to that? Whatever it takes, we got to beat those guys, and uh, if that's the way it has to get done, then then let it go. Bob is not my way, though. <laughs> <laughs> the Blue Bombers have not won in Regina a playoff game since this day in 1965. I checked the roster; you were not on it. Were you injured that day? <laughs> I, I was on the bench, that's correct. Bob, yeah. I told him not to make that joke. Hey, I didn't sorry, like it. Sorry, no, sorry. I don't like it. No, but Bob, th this this rivalry is legendary, and of course, uh, so much of it is tied and wrapped around Labor Day, the Labor Day Classic, the weather conditions. I mean, some of the games that you played in over the years in the wind, was it 81 or 82 when you actually hit the cone at the corner of the goal line? Oh, wow. In, do you remember that punt? <laughs> I, I actually do. <laughs> I, I couldn't believe someone else, but you must have dug that one up. Yeah. Oh, no, that's yeah, that uh, right was... from the memory files, Bob. But yeah, it's, well. a great, it's, a, it's always been a crazy place for Blue Bomber teams to go in and play. It, it certainly has been, and, and I've got some uh, good memories and some very bad ones uh, from that place, too. I, I had my, my first punt there was in 1980, my, my first year, and I'll never forget it. I've probably told the story too many times, but I was punting from our own 20-yard line, and it was a gale like I've never seen right in my face. I punted it, and um, I was hoping to draw a roughing the punter penalty because I shanked it a bit. And I was on my back, and I'm looking downfield, and I see the ball hitting about 15 yards down the field, and it started rolling backwards. I got up and chased it, and it went out of bounds on the 12. So it punched it from our 20, and it went out of bounds on our 12. So it was a minus 8-yard punt, the first punt I ever punted there. So, yeah, that's the worst memory I've ever had. And then in 85, I think, yeah, I hit, you're, you're right, that was uh, 1982. I put it uh, uh, on the 1-yard line, which was pretty sweet. 
And then in, uh, it all turned around for me. I think it was 85. I had a, a punt went over their heads and rolled. And I think it was 95 yards or something like that. It was 96, so, yeah. Bob. It was 96 what? yards through the end zone. What? Yeah, 96. I remember that. I just do. <laughs> I just oh, you, do. Oh, you've got it somewhere. You couldn't remember that. No, I do. I remember. Okay. I got nothing written down here. Yeah. I was. I wrote down a number when you were telling that story about the backwards punt, and I wrote minus yeah. eighteen yards to Brett no, here, but it was minus bad. eight. <laughs> so I remember that one yeah. as well. What is it about going there, there though? You know, the the fans oh. are. They're. I mean, as good as the fans are here in Winnipeg, uh, they they are. They're insane in Saskatchewan. Yeah. You know, you know what I really remember is the night before the games. Like we, it was a nightmare because there would be fans up all night screaming. You could never get any sleep. And I roomed with Trevor Kennard one time, and I remember well twice. Uh, they had a, a door between the um, uh, the rooms we were staying at, and the guys were trying to get into our room. That happened a couple of times. And then one time in the middle of the night, someone actually had a key to our room, and we had the chain on. And the guy had his hand in there trying to get the chain off. <laughs> and Trevor goes flying up to the door and starts screaming at the guy. And he says, I can smell booze on his breath. And he just took off and ran down the hall. But, you know, that, that was commonplace out there. And I just hope the guys don't have to deal with that this time. I like to think they've moved hotels or something since oh, then. But, yeah. but I wonder, you know, to Greg's point, like there's been many years we lose when we go into Saskatchewan, even when we're the far superior team. So is part of it mental? Uh, boy, they, you know, they really get up for that game. There's no question about it. Um, the fans go crazy. Like I say, it's, it's a, um, it's sort of a, a U.S. college football atmosphere there. Fans are, you know, at eight o'clock in the morning, they're going nuts. And, and it's just a, a whole, I, I think they get up for it may, way more than we do. At least it, that's what it seems like. Uh, we look at it just as a game, but they look at it as, as really a lot of times they, they weren't very good teams. They look at it like, like they're a great cup if they could ever beat us. And unfortunately, you're right. Uh, they beat us quite often there. Bob, this is, uh, you're, you were no stranger to big games and preparing for them. You, you won three great cups as a blue bomber. So what is going to be the key here? Because the bombers, by all accounts, are the are the really the hottest team in the CFL right now. They're playing the yeah. best football that they've played all year. They're putting all things together. And Doug Brown and I recorded our Blue Bomber podcast yesterday. And basically yeah. I summarized it this way. If the Bombers lose, it will be because they beat themselves. How do you overcome that? Well, listen, I, I, I you know, I'm not going to say anything that's crazy out there. I just think that you have to, as a, their defense is very good, I think. And our offense has to be able to move the ball. You know, conversely, Zach Kolaris, I'm not that impressed with him. He's been injured a lot. He's been really inconsistent, and we kicked their butt the last time we played them. So, you know, I, I, when you go into games like this, and it is a lot more pressure. Like, everybody is under pressure in these games. You make one mistake, and it could cost you the game. So, you know, it's a team, that again, that doesn't make the, the big mistake at the wrong time. You fumble the ball, you get an interception, and a ball tipped or something like that can cost you the football game. You've got to you've got to be nail it down and not make the, the big mistake to lose it for your team. Bob Cameron, thank you so much for joining us this morning. We appreciate the visit. I, I love talking to you guys. That's great. Thanks. Winnipeg Blue Bomber, great. Bob Cameron joining us live on 680 CJOB to talk about the storied rivalry between the Bombers and the Riders. I just sent him a quick text, too, to say, just so you know, I'm pretty sure Greg has a photographic memory, just in case you wondered where all that was coming from.
Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb on 680 CJOB. Tonight, something special happening at Sherry Zedek Synagogue at 561 Wellington Crescent. It's presented by JNF Manitoba and Saskatchewan, where you can hear the story of an Israeli helicopter pilot crash survivor becoming a Paralympic gold medalist. It is free admission, and that person is here in studio with us. His name is Noam Gershani. Noam, thank you so much for joining us today. Very much, very nice to meet you. Hi, thank you for having me. So the first question that we wanted to, to ask you about, one of the things that I was curious about is uh, the story of you becoming a pilot. How did that come about? When did you, I guess, how old were you when you first realized you wanted to be a pilot? Actually, my dream wasn't being a pilot. Um, when you turn 18 in Israel, everyone has to enlist to the army. And I wanted to be an uh, infantry combat soldier uh, in a special unit, but... Uh, the army has its uh, priorities, and uh, I always said I would give my 100% wherever they put me, so uh, flight school was uh, was the thing they want me in. And it took uh, two years to graduate, and another, I would say, uh, 14 months of uh, intensive training till you, became a, you become a, an operational pilot. The If you sign up for the Canadian military, you might see battle you don't always know that if you if you're in israel i think any kid that grows up and knows they're a they're going to be in the army no matter what man or woman right yeah but also that you're probably going to see um some sort of conflict because unfortunately just that seems to be the events over there yeah we live in a dangerous neighborhood israel and the middle east now is stirring and actually (laughs) it's always stirring so for you it was 2006 um, when you had your injury with Lebanon? Is yeah, I was uh, serving for uh, five and a half years. Um, usually mandatory service for guys is three years and for girls is two years. But uh, if you serve in flight school, you have to uh, serve additional time. So five and a half years after I enlisted, uh, I was injured uh, during the second Lebanon war uh, conflict. What happened in this, in this crash? Uh, our mission was to support uh, ground forces and uh, in the middle of the mission... Um, we flew uh, two helicopters in the same formation, two Apaches, and uh, we collided with the, the second helicopter. And uh, we were uh, 6,000 feet in the air, and uh, we started crashing both uh, both helicopters. How did you survive that? Yeah, that is uh, unexplainable. Um, some said uh, miracle, some said uh, divine intervention. My co-pilot uh, was killed because we lost uh, control, we lost our tail rotor, and uh, we lost our night vision system as well. It was in the night. Um, but I don't know how, but uh, they were able to save me. I imagine there's no getting a parachute on in that moment and trying to save yourself, right? Yeah, you just... we don't have an eject button or parachutes in helicopters. Whatever happened to the helicopter, you, you're stuck inside. So uh, we had a long way down. Uh, it took us about a minute of uh, uncontrolled falling. And uh, we crashed. And uh, I woke up uh, a week later. I was uh, unconscious for a week. I woke up a week later in the hospital with no memory of what happened. And then, uh, you know, my life changed. I just woke up to a completely different reality. Well, and this new reality is something that I think should be celebrated. You're celebrating it. You're living your life to your fullest. And, Noam, I, I get the impression that when you tell that story, it's sort of ancient history because uh, your limitations do not define you. Uh, no, I don't think so. I mean, it, it took a lot of time to re- rehabilitate and um, to recover and to regain my strength and try to work on my uh, new uh, physical disabilities. 
Um, but yeah, definitely, I don't prevent myself anything, and I, I think my life is—I uh, would—I would—I would say better than it used to be because I know how to appreciate the small things today, like walking. It took me two and a half years to be able to walk again, to get out of the wheelchair and be able to walk uh, more than a few steps. So for me, walking and uh, standing and doing, you know, basic things, take th- things people take for granted. I don't take things for granted anymore. So. Yeah, I would say I know how to appreciate life better. I don't want to gloss over your injuries. I just want to mention them. It was your legs were broken, your pelvis was broken, yeah, your vertebrae. Uh, yeah, both my legs, both my arms, uh, vertebrae, uh, uh, pelvis, uh, jaw, uh, elbow, and shoulder. Yeah, that's it. These two give me that's it. That's it. That's a long list. The, these two give me a hard time about my ability to remember certain dates and what happened on a certain day. I'm going to quiz you about your own history. Okay. Okay. What happened September eighth, two thousand twelve? I won. <laughs> First of all, I have to say, uh, it's the it's the birthday of my grandmother. Wow. That's first of all. Yeah, and she's ninety four years old. Uh, these days still still living still kicking still kicking yeah um but i won a gold medal in the london uh, paralympics in uh, wheelchair tennis that must have been an incredible achievement for you what 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 did it mean uh, it's just crazy you know i never thought i can uh, represent my country again and uh, you know in the hospital i mean the first thing i think you lose is your uh, self confidence and six years after my injury, I'm representing Israel in the, I don't know, the, the biggest stage um, sports world has to offer, uh, the Olympics. And uh, I see the Israeli flag, hear the national anthem, and I know I'm there, and my family and friends are there with me, and they were with me when some hard times in the hospital and the rehabilitation center. Uh, so just being there, I, I think I'm still digesting that. I don't know. <laughs> I, I believe if people come to the presentation, you play. Do you play the video of you when you win? Oh yeah, I, I yeah I um, during my presentation, I, uh, I I brought with me a few pictures uh, from before the injury, military service, of course the rehabilitation center when I'm and over there I'm, I'm like weak and uh, thin and skinny, and then of course uh, the sports, the way to the Olympics, and of course the gold medal ceremony. Yeah, you talked about uh, that loss of confidence. And men, men, your mental strength is so important for anyone. But then when you when you get on a stage like the Olympic stage, you need to have that edge over someone. You need to be mentally strong to succeed uh, so that you become out, come out the champion. How did you get from this, you know, from that injury and mentally strong enough to also overcome all that? Uh, first of all, I had the support and an amazing support for uh, my family and friends. And yeah, th- they were with me every day and every night in the rehabilitation. I was there. I was in the hospital for six months and there wasn't even one second I was alone. Uh, for six months and another year of daily treatments. Uh, so it takes time. I won't lie to you. It takes time and it's not like a decision. You just decide and all of a sudden everything looks great. You have your ups and downs and you have your, your issues and you have your hard days and sleepless nights. Um, but uh, I believe everyone has their inner strength and everyone has these powers. You just have to find a way to reach them and uh, believe in yourself. Our guest is Noam Gershani. He is going to be presenting tonight at Cherry Zedek Synagogue at 7 o'clock on Wellington Crescent, the story of an Israeli helicopter pilot, crash survivor who became a Paralympic gold medalist. You said wheelchair tennis? Yes. 
And were you a tennis player before? I used to play tennis, not professionally, but I used to play tennis. I used to play, I do a lot of sports, um, but uh, wheelchair tennis was the thing, the thing for me after I was injured, even though I tried everything. I tried wheelchair basketball, swimming, shooting range, everything, but uh, wheelchair tennis is the... I, tennis is challenging enough as an able-bodied person to imagine trying to I know, crazy people. I know, like crazy people. Uh, just cra- it's for crazy people, <laughs> but uh, I imagine with disabilities. Yeah, yeah it's even crazier. all around. Come on, it's not that hard. <laughs> Ariel, <laughs> Ariel Belnikov is also here. Ariel, uh, you and I have known each other for a long time now. Uh, why are you doing this? Why are you bringing Noam, Noam to the city and, and tell us a little bit about his agenda today? Thank you for having us here, you guys. It's, it's wonderful. And thank you, Greg. Long time, really. We know each other. Uh, why Noam? Because of what's happening here, the magic that you have in a place when you get a person like Noam that is defying every day, every minute, the odds. And, and, he's, and he's making it possible. So why? It's to inspire, to inspire all of us, not only the people that will, we, we all can become disabled, all of us that we have problems, all kinds of problems, and we complain, and say, ah, this, you know, really, we can do it. it the inner strength, you know, and, and if he could do it, coming from, you know, that situation, he inspires anyone, children and grown-ups, and it doesn't have to do with war or with the army, it's just life. Life happens to you, happened to him very, very quickly, and he was in something dangerous. So, yeah. And Noam, I want to say something very important. Tonight, uh, Noam uh, started his rehabilitation in a very important institution in Israel called Beit Alohem, the house of the warrior, of the, of the injured, where terrorist survivors also get rehabilitated. And, uh, and that, that place is amazing. They are, we're building the fifth facility in Ashdod, right on the beach, beautiful in the Mediterranean. The Jewish National Fund is helping Beit Alohem on this project to help 15,000 people that will need to be using and will be using that to give them hope so uh, tonight, if people find in their hearts or anyone is listening, many thousands are listening to you and I do every morning, uh, you know, uh, you can support it. You can be part of the hope and, and, and for everyone. Thank you so much. It's tonight at 7 o'clock at Sherry Zedek Synagogue at 561 Wellington Crescent. It's presented by JNF Manitoba and Saskatchewan. Noam Gershani, the story of an Israeli helicopter pilot crash survivor who became a Paralympic gold medalist. Admission is free. Ariel and Noam, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Uh, The inspiration really is uh, palpable and we very much appreciate it. Thank you very much. The Start On Demand is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere you find your favorite podcasts.